Today's reading is from Luke chapter 23, verses 32 to 43. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for this time in your word, Father. And I pray again that you would generously touch our hearts, speak into our lives uh, with a word of truth, a word of life, a fresh revelation of how good you are and how we need you in our lives, Lord. Would you speak to us by your spirit and use the words I've prepared in some way, Father, to help with that. Amen. In Time magazine, um, back in 2011, this was one of the covers they ran with. It's a story about uh, uh, Professor Kurzel, who had been interviewed by Lev Grossman. And Professor Kurzel was working on groundbreaking theories of uh, around, essentially, immortality. Um, theories of artificial intelligence and human organic life merging together. As um, the journalist Grossman puts it, uh, Kurzel believes that we're approaching a moment when computers will become intelligent, and not just intelligent, but more intelligent than humans. What the, when, when that happens, humanity, our bodies, our minds, our civilization will be completely and irreversibly transformed. He believes that this moment is not only inevitable, but imminent. And according to his calculations, it's 35 years away. It's interesting that that conversation, probably back in 2011, sounded quite far out. Whereas now, 11 years on, we're like, and? Yeah, that, that makes sense. And we're not quite sure how, how it will happen, whether it's AI uh, becoming super intelligent cyborgs as it all merges together with us, or whether computers will extend our intellectual in, uh, abilities, or will they help treat things that we suffer with in such a way that prolongs our lifespans. Interestingly, in Kurzweil's future, biotechnology and nanotechnology give us the power to manipulate our bodies and the world around us. And it's done at a molecular level. And so the human genome becomes the place where so much code becomes bug tested and optimized 
and, if necessary, rewritten to preserve life, to carry on going. And it's interesting that towards the end of the article, there's clearly a spiritual connection. And I watched some YouTube stuff of the professor, and actually, he's, he's actually very open-minded about God and spirituality and humans being more than just flesh and blood and bone and stuff. But interestingly, the journalist picks up on this. As he finishes the article, he says, death loses its sting once and for all. Well, can you hear the, the link with 1 Corinthians 15 and, and Hosea 13? And the motivation for Professor Kurzil, He hopes to bring his dead father back to life. It's, fun, it's fan, fascinating, isn't it? What do we do with death? Is there life beyond it? Can we take the whole power of science and use it to find the answer? He's not alone, this professor. Elon Musk is looking at exactly the same thing in different ways. Bringing life after death. A few years later, not connected at all, but in 2014, a group of artists and musicians in England were asked, asked a thousand people one question, and they based a show, they put on a production based on these answers. The question was, what is your happiest memory? And the answers came in, and there were lots of first dates, first dances, first loves. There were memories of weddings and births, memories of the holidays, faces of loved ones now lost. And as they collected these memories of happiness, they noticed three things. The first was that less than 1% of the happy memories had anything to do with material stuff. The stuff that could be bought and collected. Secondly, the memories were nearly always about relationships of one kind or another, family or friends or lovers. And they discovered the third thing when they, when they fed all of these happy memories into the computer that then churned it all out and figured it all out. The word that came up most was the word home. Fascinating to hear that resonance in uh, Matthew's story as well. Home. The director said the shows ended up being a cross between a wedding and a wake. It was a celebration mixed with sadness because these memories of happiness... There's a fact that the happiness had gone. It hadn't lasted. And it's at this point, there's a massive connection, isn't there, with Professor Kurzil and the motivation for all his work to bring a dead loved one back to life. You see, what we're left with is longing. There's a longing in each of us. And essentially, it's a longing for life to last. And the Christian faith insists that is possible. Remarkably, as he dies, Jesus promises us that we, can have, that we can have and he can give life beyond death with him in paradise. Verse 43 of the reading, if you've got Luke 23 open on your phone or in a Bible, um, please uh, look that up. How can we know, therefore, that life after death is possible? And I've just got two points today. The first is this, in answer to that big question, is life possible after death? It is when you look at Jesus who gave his life to make everlasting life a reality for us. It comes because of one person's action. 
And this passage picks up the story at Jesus' death. Jesus is known as the Prince of Peace. He comes, as I said earlier in the service, on a donkey into Jerusalem, and people are cheering him as the king who's going to restore everything. And ironically, though, as the Prince of Peace, he made a lot of people angry. The religious and political leaders of the day had a problem with him because he threatened their priorities and power. So they worked to get rid of him. He was a fly in their ointment that needed to be hoiked out and thrown away. And what we see just before um, this passage in Luke 23, the build-up to it, is that Jesus is arrested in secret. He's faced a corrupt court. It's not a fair trial. The authorities bring in false witnesses. They stir up the crowd as well, visiting Jerusalem for the Passover feast, which creates aggravation with the Romans and worries them that things could get out of hand and there'd be a riot. Now, the charges they brought sound plausible. Jesus is claiming to be God. He's claiming to be a king, that, and that must threaten and, uh, Rome. It's spoiling for a fight with Rome, isn't it? Anything against Rome must be stamped out. So the toughest sentence that the Jewish leaders can get and that Rome can give is the death sentence. Death by crucifixion. Now, again, in our minds, the cross is so commonplace as a symbol, particularly here in Western culture and throughout the world, it's easy to forget how odd it is that that would be the symbol. We've domesticated it, but this is a barbaric, horrific execution. Imagine if we walked around with electric chair pendants or AK-47 medallions. It would be odd. It would be offensive. And the cross is offensive. Not only was it deliberately designed to be a slow and agonizing death by asphyxiation, it was also meant to bring the ultimate shame upon the person. You were crucified naked, you were humiliated, you're exposed, you're dying weak and wretched for all to see. And it was so bad that Roman citizens were exempt from crucifixion. But the empire knew they could use it to rule in terror, to put people in their place. So the Roman historian says, Tacitus, after all, we have slaves drawn from every corner of the world in our households, practicing strange customs, foreign cults, or none. And it is only by means of terror that we can hope to coerce each such scum. It's quite clear. Use this as a way of putting people down. So it's no surprise to find two other criminals executed alongside Jesus. When they came to the place called the skull, we're told, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. To the Roman soldiers, it's just another day then. It's just another bunch of executions, and these soldiers are highly skilled at it. And not only did Jesus face the physical pain, He suffered the mocking and abuse. Luke makes this very clear. Did you notice the people who were by the cross, bullying and mocking? Verse 35, the people stood watching and even the rulers, the Jewish leaders, sneered at Jesus. Verse 37, the Roman soldiers mock Jesus. Verse 39, even one of the other criminals being crucified next to Jesus insulted him. The actual word there is to blaspheme him. The criminal was saying the most angry and hateful stuff aimed at Jesus. 
Now, at a football match, a goalkeeper always plays one half nearer the opposition fans. It's the way it's set up. And those fans will do anything to put him or her off their job of keeping the ball out of the net, saving goals. Uh, and they will shout the rudest and nastiest of jokes and comments just to make them doubt that they should even be on the team or can even catch a ball. And they've got to block out those taunts. They've got to keep their mind on the job. Well, here Jesus faces something far worse. This isn't a game of football. This is a rescue mission for lost sinners like you and me. But rather than block out the taunts, Jesus amazingly prays for them. He responds. Father, forgive them. You see, even at his, this darkest time, Jesus' mercy is real. It goes out to them. It's incredible. Now, ignorance does not excuse the evil done, but the ignorant are given an opportunity to turn away from their wickedness. There will be religious leaders. We, we find that out later in, in the gospel and into Acts. There are religious leaders who come to faith, who turn in repentance and belief in Christ. Even the centurion, just a few verses down in verse 47, acknowledges something utterly unique about Jesus is happening here. He praises God for what he's just seen. Jesus has a heart of forgiveness and mercy to those who are putting him to death. Even in the midst of the bullying, the taunts, and the mocking and abuse. But all the mocking takes aim at two things which are really important. Jesus' identity and Jesus' mission. Luke gives us that little summary. If, if you're God's Messiah, the King, that's the identity. If you're God's Messiah, save yourself, save us. That's Jesus' mission. It actually reveals a very serious question. If Jesus, you could heal the the blind, if you could meet and change the poor, if you could feed a crowd of over 5,000, if you can calm a storm, if you can raise the dead, then surely you'd be able to stop your death. And the answer is yes, of course you can. So we should be asking another question. Why doesn't he? Why doesn't he? The key phrase is there in verse 35. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. You see, that phrase, the chosen one, is a reference to the prophet Isaiah, who was writing hundreds of years earlier. He spoke of a chosen one, someone who would come and bring justice to the world, who would rule over the world. A great king sent by God himself. The Jewish people were awaiting this chosen one, or the Messiah. They were particularly hoping that the Messiah would lead the insurrection against the Romans and drive them out of their land, which is what was going on on Palm Sunday. It's, Here comes the king of promised in David's line. He's going to bring peace. But this chosen one is also called a servant in Isaiah. And in a later chapter, he's described as one who would suffer. So hear these words. We'll have them up on the screen. Isaiah 53. Starting at verse 3, he was despised, that is, the suffering servant was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one whom people hid their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. So why would the chosen one suffer? Isaiah goes on, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. 
and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, the suffering servant, the iniquity of us all. Can you see the switch? You see, there is a huge irony in the religious leaders mocking Jesus and saying, if you're the chosen one, save yourself. Because Isaiah prophesied that the chosen one would have to suffer. The chosen one would have to go to death. And this is something Jesus always knew. He predicted it at key times in his ministry that he'd be killed in this way. And the reason of this suffering is that he would need to die in the place of his people. The perfect king and creator of everything bore the punishment we should take for our wrongdoing and our sin. Jesus took the pain so that we could have peace. Now, deep down, we all want peace, but so often we dictate it on our own terms. And that's where Jesus' diagnosis of our sin is so profound because he says the root of the problem is it's a vertical problem. It's with our creator. Fundamentally, we push God out of view. Fundamentally, we say, he's of insignificance, God. Whatever. We have a my life, my rules attitude. And that ruins all our relationships. It affects the vertical and the horizontal. None of us, obviously, are all bad all of the time. We're capable of great good. But honestly, we know there's an instinctive capacity for selfishness, for unthoughtfulness, even deliberate vindictive action at points. It's hard to keep good things good, isn't it? But why do we hurt the people we love the most? And all of this matters to God. That's sin. This sin which acts as a big no-entry sign into eternal life. It keeps us from enjoying life with Jesus. God cares about this. He's not indifferent. He's not indifferent to how we treat each other. He's not indifferent to how we treat the world. He's not indifferent to how we treat him. And in fact, Jesus called the judgment, the accumulation of all that sin and just going, God, here it is, and I have nothing to do with you. The judgment of that is an existence without God's blessings, which we do enjoy here and now. Jesus described that as hell, as outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth is one way he describes it. The Bible is plain speaking with us. If we turn our backs on the Lord of light, we will find ourselves left in the dark. It's the consequences of the my life, my rules attitude. But there's hope. There really is hope. We see it here on the cross as Jesus died in our place. As the mockers snarl, if you're the Messiah, save yourselves. We could imagine Jesus thinking, if I get off this cross and walk away unscathed and healed and amazingly powerful, it would, take, it would blow people's mind. They'd be like, wow, how's he done that? But if I do that, there would be no hope for anyone else. Walk off the cross, and that's to hell with the lot of you. I'll save myself, everyone else faces hell. And he'd be justified in doing that, wouldn't he? We, we've pushed God out of the scene. 
But no, he goes further. He stays. He stays so that we can have life, so that we can have peace. He endures. Here's a picture of how it works in some small way. Imagine you're cycling down the street and your brakes fail, you hit the curb, you fly off over the handles, you crash into the pavement. <laughs> There's a knowing look going on between Matthew and Alex. I, you're, you're here today, so obviously if it has happened, it turned out okay. And that's what we want, isn't it? That's why we wear the helmet. Because what happens? Your head hits the pavement and crack, that helmet takes it. And uh, I know this sounds a bit weird. I was Googling broken hel crash helmets on cyclist helmets. It's, it's interesting the pictures that come up, these poor people who have had accidents but walked away. But that's exactly, in some ways, what's going on here. The helmet takes the, the shock so that the cyclist walks away. Jesus on the cross absorbed the judgment. He took it to shield us to say it's done, it won't crush us, it won't send us to hell. It's a trivial picture of the cycling helmet one when it's put up against Jesus Christ and what he's doing for humanity because he faces a far greater force of judgment and he gives us the far greater gift of everlasting life which is truly unbreakable. It's a gift that changes people and that's what we see in this next reaction with the criminal. And it should, take, it should stop us. It should stop us in our tracks. Because here is a guy being crucified on the other side of Jesus. And he's been doing some serious thinking in all that pain and agony. Matthew and Mark, the other gospel writers, tell us he'd also been insulting Jesus. So he'd been insulting Jesus and then stops and then does a huge turn. The other, verse 40, but the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he's saying to the guy still abusing Jesus. Don't you fear God, since you are under the same judgment. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Verse 42, then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Well, what had changed his heart and mind? We're not told. It's one of those questions I'd love to hear the answer to. You know, when we get up to glory, what was it that changed your mind? Was it the way Jesus prayed for his executioners and the enemies? Was it his silence as, as the abuse was being just hurled at him? Uh, was it seeing Jesus' patient endurance as he's suffering on the cross? Perhaps all of those things were used by God's Spirit to convict the criminal that he needed this man. He needed the salvation that's going on here. And it's a clear reminder that it is a gift that seeing Jesus as he truly is, is a gift of God. And it's one that pushes us to say in this account, don't be like the other criminal. Don't be like the other guy. Learn from this believing criminal who trusts Jesus. And what, does he, what do we learn? What do we see? Well, this criminal knows himself truly. Look, he doesn't say, I'm a victim. It was my circumstances, it was, my, it was bad parenting, it was the crowd that I was with, it was the poverty, the Romans made me do it. He's not a victim, he admits his failure in front of the one person that really counts, Jesus Christ. He sees his problem, he owns it, he's getting justice, there's nowhere to hide. He's exposed as a sinner before God. And honesty about our flaws is really popular in our culture, isn't it? People want that, people want honesty, 
They love hearing it from others. It's just very hard to do when it's you that needs to be honest, isn't it? Our culture loves honesty, but it doesn't like owning it when it's on us. Christianity, you see, will never make sense. And maybe this is why, maybe at this point in time, Christianity in the West is unpopular. is because it will never make sense until we get to a point like the criminal where we say, I'm wrong. It's on me. My life, my rules actually deserves judgment. And rather than smirking at sin, admitting the reality of our fault to God is the first step in peace and life with him. So the criminal knows himself, but he also knows Jesus. He sees Jesus as innocent. He says he's done nothing wrong. He doesn't deserve to be on this cross. And remarkably, despite the appearances that Jesus is naked, he's bleeding, he's close to death, It's not the most Instagrammable shot, is it? That at that point, the criminal sees something we're meant to see, that he is a king with a kingdom. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The very thing everyone else rejects, this criminal sees clearly and is happy to accept. It's a precious moment of clarity, isn't it? It's a precious moment of trust. Um, Jez, the associate pastor here, who, who was supposed to be preaching today, and I'm sorry that he's not here delivering this preach, but he makes a fascinating op- observation. He's ill with COVID, so he's, he's keeping you safe. <laughs> and he's okay, but yeah, he needs our prayers as he gets over that. But Jez makes a fascinating observation that the criminal is the only person in the entire chapter to use, to call Jesus by his name, Jesus It's a fascinating observation because it shows the respect, it shows the dignity, it shows the personal intimate relationship that's already starting to form as the criminal uses his name, Yeshua, rescuer, saviour. You see, Jesus is not a despised man at the end of his life, but a king with the power to give a royal pardon. A king who rules over a kingdom paradise beyond death. So he simply asks, remember me. Matthew made that point so brilliantly, didn't he, in his his, uh, testimony. What's he got to go on? Nothing apart from a guy saying, you're in, and that is everything. I love how unreligious, unpretentious those words are. Remember me. He doesn't try to give the ten reasons why Jesus should let him in. You know, it's nice to cats. I buy flowers for my mum occasionally. I give to charity when I can. No, nothing will do. He can't get, even get down off the cross and prove that he means it by living a good life. He can't do any church stuff. He can't volunteer at a food bank. He can't say sorry to the people he's hurt in his life. He does not deserve Jesus' love and forgiveness. He cannot earn it. And like every other human being, me and you included, he could not do anything to save himself. And we find that so scandalous. And Jesus' reply feels so scandalous. 
truly are men. He's using Yahweh language here. He's saying this is certain. Truly, truly, our men are men. Only the words you find on the Lord's lips in the Old Testament. I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. And that word paradise is something the ancient Persians used as well for a beautiful walled park free of wild animals, a safe place, a place of beauty and safety and life. And in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's used to describe Eden. In Revelation 2, verse 7, it's used to describe God's throne room, a place of freedom, forgiveness, and security. It's a word that attracts us to look further. It's a word that's supposed to appetize. It's like travel agents' websites with those images. Look deeper, go further. True life, you see, begins with Jesus. It's not the place so much as the person. And the place is everything because the person is there. What does he say? You will be with me. You will be in my kingdom with me. True life with Jesus. Such generous, outrageous grace. And we ask, is there a catch? Victor Hugo, the writer of Les Miserables, is a a well-known illustration, one we've used before, but he really wrestled with this. And in Les Miserables, there's this point where Valjean, the criminal who's just newly released from uh, prison and and being on the galleys, is offered hospitality by a bishop. And in the night, what Valjean does is steal all the silverware, do a runner. In the morning, he's arrested. He's brought back to the bishop. He's thinking, man, I'm going back to where I'm heading where I've just come from. It's prison again and even harder. And what does the bishop do? The bishop tells Valjean in front of the police, you forgot the candlesticks. (laughs) Gives the candlesticks. The gendarmes, they can't handle it either. They're like, what is going on? The bishop says, no, you forgot the candlesticks. Now go. And interestingly, the bishop says, in the way that uh, Victor Hugo puts it, the, the words he puts in the bishop's mouth. He says, he's bought back Valjean's soul and now gives it to God. And as Valjean walks away, he's visibly shaken by the bishop's love and grace. And you start to see this res- redemptive change in Valjean's life that, that carries on. Now, is he just doing a deal? Is the bishop just saying, well, I've paid for you, you've got to earn it back? No, what he's done is he's, he's released him. He's released him from a way of life that says it's just hard yards and justice and that's all you deserve is what you get. He's released him. He's showing him grace. God's grace is how you're meant to live. And those candlesticks are never traded. They're there throughout this guy's life. There's no catch. Jesus offers us that life today and promises everything will change. So as we come here to this passage, you've got to ask yourself, where do you stand? It is the only place to land here. Who are you? Are you a crowd just passing by? (sighs) Who is that guy? Are you angry? Are you one of the hurlers of uh, abuse and insult because there's stuff that isn't right in your life and God, you you can go to hell. I pray you're like the criminal who sees Jesus as he truly is, who asks for forgiveness and receives it, who sees that 
death is defeated by the death of Christ and his life. At Grace Church, we make opportunities for people to look into that. We'll have details of our Christianity Explore course um, coming up soon. And there's an email there, ask at Grace Church Manchester, that you can follow up with. But don't go from here without doing business with God and again looking with fresh eyes at what he has done in the cross and that forgiveness he offers. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love the world so much that in sending your son Jesus Christ to die on a cross to take judgment for our sin, Father, we admit that we have sinned against you. We've sinned against other people. We've lived lives our way. And we need your forgiveness. Please bring that forgiveness to our hearts. Open hearts and minds to receive your forgiveness. Be our king. And lead us each day to live for you. Bringing us safely home. Home to that paradise where you are. Where we will be with you for eternity. Amen.